All right. Thank you for joining me for this episode six of the Vinyl Detroit podcast. So I'm going to jump right into it this time with a, not a real long introduction here because I think the interview is so fantastic. I think you'll hear a lot of those things that I would have talked about in the beginning. You'll hear during the, the interview. So for this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Matthew Jacobson, who is one of my dearest friends, but also the founder of the label Le Grand Magistery. Because this particular discussion went very, very deep into Matt's inspirations for the label, his design work for other artists and more, I decided to split the interview into two episodes. So Le Grand Magistery was very, very dear to me, not just for the fact that I played on a few tracks that were on the label, but also I was very fortunate to see it from its beginnings and really from its infancy. Matt started Le Grand Magistery in 1996 with the first release by Momus. He later went on to release albums and singles really by a wide variety of artists, including Shoestring's debut LP, Mascot, Stars, and others. Again, I really, really feel fortunate that Matt spent quite a bit of his time with me to recall these memories. And a lot of these memories include, you know, memories from his youth, from growing up in Detroit and others, a lot of which really went into Le Grand Magisterium and really, really forming who Matt is today. So with that, I'd like to jump right into episode one of this conversation with Matthew Jacobson, founder of the wonderful Le Grand Magistery. But first, let's hear a track by one of the artists Matt released, Kahimi Kari, who on this particular track was accompanied by yet another Le Grand Magistery artist, Momus. So from 1998's KKKK album, this is 1020th Century Chairs by Kahimi Kari. And after that, we'll get into the discussion with Matt. Magistery. Thanks for having me, Brian. Absolutely. I'm so excited to talk with you. Uh, you know, we, we've obviously known each other since I think probably the early, earliest days of, of the label and, and possibly even slightly before. So I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm really excited to, to hear some of your answers to these questions. And uh, again, let's just like two friends talking. <laughs> so, you know, one thing that, you know, I've known you forever and one thing I've always really kind of wondered and I really never never knew the answer to this but I'd like to talk a little bit about the genesis of the label I'd like to kind of see if you can maybe share the moment when you made that decision to start Le Grand Magistery. Sure so we're, we're talking quite a while ago now um, but what I remember is that the label started off as really a one-off project. Uh, the intention wasn't to start a record label. It was essentially to release a record. And what that record was, was a tribute album to a record label whom I was a massive fan of called L Records, which was run by Mike Alway uh, in London. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it really was, and in many ways still is, my favorite label. Um, as far as labels go, L Records had it all. Uh, it was an eclectic mix of, of really brilliant artists, uh, consistently creative album art, uh, and a little bit of, of mystery. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, and few people, uh, in particular in the U.S., and definitely whom I knew, uh, were aware of this label. And so at the time, you know, nowadays you could you know, I could mention it to someone or I could put together a playlist on Spotify and, and share it with others. But at the time that wasn't possible. And so what I thought was the best way for other people to experience the label was for me to uh, reach out to musicians I knew 
and see if they would record tribute songs to the label. And that was an album, a tribute album that was going to be called Instant Coffee, a tribute to L Records. Uh, I ended up getting nearly a hundred submissions for that release. And I was, gosh, I was probably what, 22 years old. I mean, I was, I was fairly young. I was definitely green, had never run or thought about running any sort of business before. And I didn't know how to turn people down. And so I had a hundred songs, some of which were absolutely brilliant. You know, some were of equal brilliance to the originals and others maybe even surpassed them. But there were a few um, that weren't so great. And I wasn't at the time comfortable uh, letting people know, you know, I'm sorry you spent your time and energy uh, and artistry putting together these songs that aren't going to make the cut. And so in many ways, and there were a few other reasons, but in many ways that project stagnated. Um, and to this day, um, the sort of genesis, as you ask for the label, which was this record, still has not yet been released. Mm. However, in the process of putting that release together, I ended up making connections with many of the original artists who had been on L Records. Uh, one of whom was Kevin Wright, who had mm -hmm. recorded under the band name Always. Uh, and he had recorded a new album under the band name Mr. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. And he asked me if he could send me that record because uh, he was looking for a record label. And that was really the start of Le Grand Magistery as a record label. I remember the day I received... Uh, it probably was a cassette tape, a cassette recording uh, of that album. And I listened to it and how much easier um, to release a record by one artist than a hundred artists um, to release a record where, you know, the publishing was controlled by one person versus, you know, uh, a myriad of, of people or entities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that was the start of the label. However, uh, some listeners uh, and yourself might know that that Mr. Wright album wasn't actually the first release on the label. The first release was Momus's album, 20 Vodka Jellies. Mm -hmm. And how that happened was Momus was at the time, um, and again, in many ways still today, uh, one of, if not my favorite artist. And I had been in touch with Momus. We had met in person um, several years prior and we had been communicating at the time via AOL uh, email or messenger via AOL. <laughs> and I had mentioned to him that I was going to be releasing this Mr. Right album. And I remember clear as day, he wrote and said, my albums aren't even released in the U.S. And I responded immediately and said, I'll, I'll release them. Mm -hmm. And that was, again, that was the start of the label and, and this great journey that it took me on mentally. So as I was driving today, I actually listened to the C86 podcast, and uh, I, it's been one of my inspirations for starting this. And during that episode, uh, he interviewed Momus, and, and it's funny you bring up the fact on the U.S. part, because he actually mentioned that. And he had said that he went through these phases of, I don't know if it was like five-year cycles, but he would he would you know, he would kind of introduce his music to a, a territory or a country, and he found that over the course of about five years each time, you know, the, the interest would be really great and then it would wane. And then he said, he just had to go find another country. <laughs> That's funny. So, I'll have to listen to that. Yeah. It's really good. It was really good. And I mean, he was, he's, he's a real artist. I'll tell you, I just, you know, they, they had mentioned, I don't know if it came up in there or somewhere else when I was researching this, but that he had done, whether it was, you know, solo work or, or one of his other projects, he had done an album a year for like, 20 years straight oh yeah <laughs> so pretty yeah, and, prolific yeah and in addition to his music uh you know he's um he's been in the whitney biennial uh, in new york mm -hmm. he has written several novels uh, i mean he's incredibly prolific across numerous mediums mm -hmm. he made the comment too he said that i think it was him that you know people make a big deal out of the fact that he was releasing an album a year and he said honestly he said i could do two albums a year he said i really i i, I have that in me so that that goes to show you the creativity i mean some artists it just it takes them a long time to do that but for him it's just it's natural 
So, you know, you kind of explained the genesis of the label and, and how it got started. And I'll be honest, I, I didn't know most of that. Uh, so one other question that came up when I was putting this together was, I don't, I don't really even know the genesis of the name. So would you be able mm -hmm. to share with how, how that came about and where the Grand Magistery came from? Sure. It, it's actually tied um, to that unreleased first album. Uh, and also in my history, um, as having been a, a magician when I was a child. And so when I was coming up with the name for the record label, I had an old dictionary that had belonged to uh, one of my relatives. And I remember I started on the word magic. So I opened up the dictionary, put my finger on the word magic, and then just sort of read down, um, you know, word by word until I got to something that sounded interesting. And the first word that sounded interesting to me after magic was magistery. Uh, and in my recollection, I saw the word magistery, and I believe that underneath it, there was a, a sort of notation that said the grand magistery, mm. and that the grand magistery was um, defined as being another name for the fountain of youth. Mm. And what I really loved about that was that as a tribute to an older record label, um, you know, this would be the, the sort of perfect name, the Grand Magistery, a tribute to an old label because you're sort of reviving it, bringing it, you know, sort of life again, bringing it to life again. Um, later on, I could never locate that definition again. And the definition that I found now when I look up Magistery and the Grand Magistery is that it's another name for the Philosopher's Stone. Mm. And the Philosopher's Stone was essentially this substance that was... Um, able to turn base metals into gold. Nice. So again, somewhat appropriate given the genesis. Now you might ask why I called it La Grand Magistery instead of the Grand Magistery. Uh, and again, if you recall the, the uh, impetus for starting the label or for releasing the record was a tribute to L Records, E-L. Mm -hmm. And so I, I realized that if I just flipped E-L, it was La, L-E, Grand Magistery. And in my vision of this, the logo for La Grand Magistery would have started with the L Records logo, um, sort of a mirror of that La mm. Grand Magistery. Wow. You know, I didn't know any of that. And, I, and yeah. I think that's really, really cool. I mean, all these years and all these releases that I've been listening to and looking at the sleeves for, and I, I, I never knew that. That, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. I would say throughout a lot of my work, whether in music or otherwise, there are a lot of details like that, that mm -hmm. admittedly, I might be the only one, if mm -hmm. not one of a few who cares about or knows about, but it's really important to me for some reason to, um, to include meaning, uh, you know, in, in, in everything when possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you, did you find, and, and this is just a, kind of a follow-up on that, but I mean, have you found that that there's folks out there that back in back in that that time period that were looking for those type of hints or, or, or was it really just your secret? Well, you know, I don't know that uh, anyone was looking for it. I know that I would look for those things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I was reading a book, I might sort of scan the left column of the page to see if the words stacked on top of each other um, spelled anything out, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of, um, purposeful, purposefully or not. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, there's, a, there's a, a lot of artists who do hide meaning in their work. Uh, and I'm someone who likes to, to search for that, um, mm -hmm. whether it exists or not, whether it was intended or not. Wow. Yeah, you know, you, you kind of mentioned, you know, that, that, you know, your, your day job involves design and, and we're going to get into that a little bit later, but, uh, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about that because it, you've heard the previous episodes and obviously I'm not, I'm not a designer, I'm not an artist, but I, I really, I have a deep appreciation for those things. And particularly when you, when you couple it with music, I think is where the magic happens, at least for me. At what point did you have that moment where you said, you know, design is my passion? I mean, you mentioned magic and, and you know, I, I know you're, you've been into a lot of different forays, but when, when did design touch you? Yeah. You know, Brian, it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's really all tied together. Um, my, my love of design grew from my interest um, and, uh, and sort of life in magic. Uh, I remember as a kid, 
uh, one of my favorite magicians um, who ended up as a mentor uh, was Harry Blackstone Jr. And Harry Blackstone Jr.'s father, Harry Blackstone, um, just like Harry Blackstone Jr. himself, was a world famous magician. And I remember I had a book, um, a book that was uh, put together by a guy named Charles Reynolds. And I believe uh, it was sort of an oversized book, like 11 by 14 or something larger than that. I, I sadly no longer have this book, um, but it was a collection of magic posters. And in there was a magic poster for Harry Blackstone Sr. And the poster was a profile of Blackstone. So you saw his face in profile, but then behind him on the wall was a shadow, but the shadow that he cast wasn't just of his profile, but he, it was of the devil. So he had like devil horns and maybe like a devilish beard. Uh, and so we also get to what I was talking about previously of like finding sort of, you know, and that was hidden in plain sight, but finding, um, you know, sort of something that maybe when you see it once you don't pick up, but on the second time you do. So I remember that Blackstone poster was really key to me. Uh, second to that in that same book was a poster for Alexander who was a mind reader. And again, it was a profile of Alexander and he was wearing a turban, but the turban was shaped like a question mark. And the poster said, ask Alexander, because he would be on stage and people in the audience would think of questions and without speaking their question out loud, he would answer them from the stage. And so I really loved that visually these posters would sort of represent uh, sort of the style or, or somehow spoke to the magic that these, that these people performed. Uh, another one, sort of the, the sort of, um, my holy trinity of, of magic posters was Chung Ling Su, who was a great manipulator. And the poster uh, showed him facing forward and he had all uh, his two hands in front of him with his five fingers on each hand spread apart. And it, the poster said Chung Ling Su and his 10 assistants. <laughs> and this was a time when there were these roadshow magic shows with, you know, dozens of assistants, these big spectacles. And yet Chung Ling Su was there and his 10 assistants were his fingers. Um, and that came across in the poster. And that really um, spurned my, my love of design. It was the first time I ever even thought or knew that design was something. Uh, another thing, Brian, like, like yourself, you know, as you know, I grew up in Michigan mm -hmm. and I remember, and I don't remember where it was, but I remember many times driving with my, with my family on the highway and we would pass this sort of corporate building for a company called Eaton, E-A, what was it? E-A-T-O-N. Mm -hmm. And I remember the logo that like every other letter was negative. So it was like a positive, like a white E, a clear A, a white T, a clear O, a white N. And it was the first time, again, I remember like, wow, that's sort of cool. Like, how did they do that? And why did they do that? Years later, the FedEx logo, um, the, the new, and it's been, been around for a while, FedEx logo for those, and, and I'm going to blow your mind if you don't know this, but I'm sure you all know this. And so I'm just telling you what you already know. But in between the E and the X of the FedEx logo is an arrow pointing forward, um, which I just think is absolutely brilliant because it just instantly signals what they do. They take things from point A to point B very quickly. Uh, and so it was seeing things like this, and again, way prior to the FedEx logo that really uh, opened my eyes to, to a, um, the possibility of design to communicate. So yeah, there, you left a lot on the table there for me to talk about. So, you know, the fact that, that magic played a role in, in your design passion, I think is, is pretty unbelievable. And, you know, I, I actually do know the Eaton sign you're talking about. And I believe oh, cool. You know, for, for those of you who are from Michigan, I, I believe it's off of I-75 somewhere. I, I feel like I've seen it as well many times. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, it, it's, so, yeah, I, I, I never really realized that positive-negative contrast. And and even larger is I never noticed that in the FedEx logo. No, see, really? No, and I see them probably four times a week. I, oh, I've wow. never seen that. 
now you now it's all you're gonna see. I remember <laughs> when someone first pointed it out to me, and and then it was all it was all I ever saw. Oh, I'm gonna blame you for it now. Uh, but there's also um, Baskin Robbins, and and do you know about the Baskin Robbins logo? I don't. So you know Baskin Robbins when they started out, they had 31 flavors of ice cream, mm -hmm. and so the B R in the Baskin Robbins logo, if you look at it, it's it's sort of um, almost like a stencil. But in between the B and the R, part of the B and R is the number 31. Mm -hmm. I can picture uh, and that. It, and then a connection the, to me is about maybe four years ago, um, uh, I redesigned the Baskin Robbins scoop cups uh, and ice cream cone wrappers and, and beverage cups. Um, with a great team of, of other designers as well. Wow, wow. See, I love I love that stuff. You know, and, and the average person probably probably either doesn't see it or sees it and, and just subconsciously takes it in. You know what I mean? And I'm sure that's probably the goal. Yeah, oh, wow. definitely. I mean, I think, you know, that, that design, number one, in, in my opinion, shouldn't be decorative for the sake of being decorative. You know, everything should be there for a reason. But overall, when you see something, it should be pleasing, it should be appropriate, and you shouldn't think about it too much. You know, me as a designer, I think about it too much. Um, and I'm sure for many listeners, you're thinking he thinks about it too much. But, um, but I think you put that meaning in there, because in some way, even if others don't realize it, having it there, I think really does solidify a design and, and it just makes it sing in a way that without that, it wouldn't. Uh, you know, you had, you had mentioned that, you know, obviously that you grew up in Detroit. I mean, in the Detroit area, those of you who have, you know, owned Le Grand Magistery CDs or records, you would, you would see the Bloomfield, I think it was Bloomfield Hills address on there. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we obviously share that, that common bond. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and, and, Growing up in this area, in the Detroit area, you also came from, I would say, a long line of creative and enterprising family members. I guess I'd like to know from you what the role of, of this area played uh, for you, as well as the, the role that your family has played in, in really, I guess, shaping who you are. Uh, well, so that that's a, a great two-pronged question. Um, first, Detroit, and second, family. Um, Detroit uh shaped me in immeasurable or innumerable ways um one of which were the great record stores that existed in the in the 80s mm -hmm. um play it again records in farmington hills um where i discovered so many uh mm -hmm. artists for the very first time uh and school kids records mm -hmm. in ann arbor where my friend ruse and i uh, in high school, we're spending the weekend or one afternoon of the weekend in Ann Arbor. And we walked into school kids records and they were playing a creation records compilation called doing it for the kids. Mm -hmm. And there was a song on that compilation by Momus. And that was the very first, um, time that I ever heard Momus. Uh, I asked them what it was. They told me, they said that they were getting in an album of his. And the next time I was able to, to have someone drive us back to Ann Arbor, um, you know, cause I, I couldn't drive at the time. Uh, you know, I, I was able to pick up that record. So those great record stores in Detroit really shaped my musical, um, interest and knowledge, uh, as well as the great radio stations. Um, we, we had living in Detroit, you know, Brian, I don't know if you took advantage of this as well, but CBC, which was the Canadian broadcasting, um, what not system what would it be canadian broadcast corporation, corporation. Mm -hmm. maybe let's say that's that's mm -hmm. what it was um <laughs> broadcast from across the river um from windsor ontario and there was a great show called brave new waves with david wisdom mm. and i i remember especially when i used to drive when or when i started driving probably when i was you know 15 16 um what did they call those driveway moments where I would get home at night and be listening to this sort of like overnight brave new wave station and, and just sit in the driveway with the radio on because I wanted to hear, you know, who that song was by, what the next song was, you know, who they'd be speaking to next, what they'd be saying, what they'd be playing. Um, and so both the record stores in Detroit 
as well as the radio that, that we heard from Canada um, really influenced my musical taste. Mm -hmm. So that was Detroit. In terms of family, my dad um, had a huge influence on me in, in so many ways. When he was 17, he um, inexplicably uh, turned down a recording contract from Motown. Um, wow. He was a singer and he was offered a recording contract from Motown. We found the letter. He, he passed away early in the pandemic. And I remember we found this letter from Motown offering him a recording contract. But instead, he had made the decision to move to New York, New York City. And he signed a deal with 20th Century Fox Records, um, which was a division of the movie company. Mm -hmm. And he released a single, a song called Oh, You Beautiful Doll, um, which was a cover. And on the B side was a song he wrote called Bring Back the Girl That Made Me Cry. And um, he released that single. And shortly thereafter, and not because of the single, um, 20th Century Fox record division uh, shut down. And so he soon after moved back to Michigan, uh, married my mom, uh, and essentially uh, gave up on his music career. But the music that he played throughout the house, including the recordings released and unreleased from his time in New York, uh, you know, which were very much of the, I don't know, sort of like Frank Sinatra, Paul Anka, Johnny Hartman, you know, sort of, sort of you know, he was a bit of a crooner. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the music I grew up listening to. And I wouldn't say that the music that I gravitated towards later um, was similar in style, but in many ways, it was similar in in narrative. You know, these are songs that that I still really appreciate. Were about these sort of stories. They were little vignettes and and sort of moments of life. It's less about the sound of the music and more about the um, storytelling in in the music that I like. So, Detroit introduced me to a lot of music, and my family um, introduced me to a certain type of music. If that uh, if that answers your question. That answers my question greatly. And, and you know, for those fans of the label, I, I believe you, you released one of your father's songs on a compilation, I believe it was. Uh, so that's true. Uh, I had released uh, Bring Back the Girl That Made Me Cry mm -hmm. on the All Done With Mirrors compilation. And then actually Elephant Records out of Spain, um, based on having heard that song, released both a vinyl and CD single of... Um, uh, of a few of his other recordings as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I just, I'm, I'm amazed by the fact that, that Motown, you know, would have, would have approached yeah. him because, you know, I, I think back, I'm not sure what year that was, but I think about the Motown arc and, and I'm just trying to figure out where, you know, your dad's sound would have fit there. Yeah. Or, or how there was a guy I'm trying to remember, there was a guy who I ended up signing to Motown, who my dad used to perform with and, and sort of sing with. Um, I wish I could remember what that guy's name was. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this would have been in the, in the, um, what, early to mid sixties. Wow. Early to mid sixties. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, Motown ruled then, you know, I mean, Motown Oh yeah, was it was, huge. it was huge. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if I could go back and shake him and say, why'd you make that decision? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, back to your answer, I mean, Detroit, you know, obviously the, the radio and, and, and the record stores, I mean, those are, those are for sure, but you know, it just has such a rich tradition and a lot of these folks and, but they're, they're all over. I mean, the, these folks are, are all over. There's, there's a record store here called Melodies and Memories and, I, I shop there quite a bit. I, I love the folks that run it. And on their Instagram, they always show themselves posing at these different events with all these Detroit legends. So they're still all out there. I mean, you know, a lot of them were very young when they made those recordings and when they were involved in the music business. So it, it's 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 pretty neat, you know, that, that that was the case. Yeah. You know, you know what I actually really love about Detroit? And as you know, I, I don't live in Detroit anymore. I, I did move back there uh, in the mid nineties. Uh, and, and I'd say for the most part of when uh, Le Grand Magistery was launched uh, and, and, and going, I was living in Detroit um, or in the suburbs of Detroit. But the thing that I love about that area is that 
if you're interested in music, if you're playing in a band, it is number one, a relatively small community. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of like cross-pollination. So I remember uh, at the time I used to have, you might remember, I had a DJ night at the mm -hmm. Garden Bowl, which was in the Magic Stick, which was in the Majestic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to play essentially, you know, indie pop. Mm -hmm. But people showing up would be, you know, from garage bands, from rock bands, from space rock bands, from, you know, it, it's like, it, it's, it's a relatively small community in, in the scope of things that everyone knows each other. Um, and, and it's, it's really great and supportive in that way. It's not siloed, like I believe um, you would find in, in, you know, bigger cities with, um, you know, with more ability to just sort of focus on that one thing you do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Like, like, you know, like a Chicago, New York, LA, wherever, I'm sure, you know, each individual scene would, would go, I'll just use the word deeper. Whereas, you know, here it's, it's maybe the same breath, but maybe not as deep, which means the folks are, are really, and I think you said the word are really more supportive of each other. Yeah, and, and I think it, it's it's always good no matter what industry or field you're in. I think it's great to be influenced by other, um, you know, people doing other things, other industries, other areas, other arts and, and um, other sciences. Uh, and so Detroit, you know, at least the music community in that really has that. Again, I think it, it's, it's why so much interesting um, and sort of new styles of music, I, I believe, have grown out of that area. Now, by no means was the Grand Magistrate focused on new or um you know inventive music i mean what we did was was fairly i'd say pastiche and and um uh and and sort of um very specifically um what indie or pop focused but uh still i very much feel like detroit itself definitely influenced um you know some of what i or must have influenced what i did with the label sure sure it, it's funny you say that because you know we're gonna we're gonna take a listen to a track now and you know it's from another individual who i believe she grew up in detroit i don't think her her musical roots were here but that was kendall mead and you know her project mascot which i love and and you know i'm gonna do an episode here in the in the in the near future focusing on one of her records but you know we're gonna hear the track uh costume ball which is from the album Follow the Sound, uh, I've listened to that song so many times. And, and what's funny about it is that, for me, it has this connection to New York City. And so when whenever I go there, and I've been there plenty of times, I, I have this habit. And it started probably right around the time the album came out, right around 2000, where as I'm flying into LaGuardia or, or Kennedy or wherever else, and I can see the city, I put on that song because I think... <laughs> I think it somehow captures like the romanticism of, of New York. And we all know, I mean, you've lived there. I've been there enough times to know that not all of the city is romantic, but right. I think that song really, really catches it. And, and, you know, that album um, that, that Kendall put together, you know, had production credits wide ranging. I mean, Jim O'Rourke, Jeffrey Barron, Mario from Shoestrings. Um, the song that we're going to hear next again is called Costume Ball. Uh, Torque Campbell from Stars accompanies Kendall on this track, and I, what I would say is the most perfect way. So let's go ahead and give Costume Ball a listen. Too good to be really loosen up with each sip, and we never ever dance yet. I join at the hip, I catch you smiling. You know, it's interesting. Um, Kendall wrote to me just, uh, I don't even think it was a week ago. I think it was just this past weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, stars were playing in New York City for the first time since the pandemic. Uh, and she joined them on stage to perform uh, with them one of their songs. Wow. Um, but, uh, but it's interesting. I remember my recollection, uh, and I don't know if, if I'm 
recalling correctly, but was that that song might have been about an event she went to at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Mm. Um, and, uh, and of course, so, so it is tied, you know, as you were saying to New York mm-hmm. and, uh, and of course produced by stars with the sort of, um, spoken word vocals from Torquil Campbell, which, yeah, which I, I think is, I mean, it, it was really cool how they, I mean, you know, this of course, but that, that mirror recording where obviously she, she did the, a similar piece on one of their songs. And then I'm not sure who came first, but then he came along and did his part on her song. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love that. So your your designs for the Grand Magistery definitely have a cohesive look, um, but yet very, very diverse depending on the artist. And and I think, you know, th- they really played an important role in the in the, the look and the aesthetic for the label, which is why I really spent so much time on the design. Yeah. I'd like to know how you approach that sleeve design and, and how you balance that cohesiveness for the label with the individual uh, design, I guess, requests of the artist. Oh, interesting. So I, I suppose in some ways, you know, maybe the artist uh, could answer that question better, <laughs> see if I hit the mark there. But, you know, from my perspective, every time I design, um, in particular for music, it's a blank slate. Um, I don't go in with anything preconceived of what it should look like. Um, I always start with the music. So I listen to the music, I listen to the songs, and then I start sketching. Mm. Um, you know, maybe even admittedly, probably even more than I'd listen to the band. Um, it's, it's what the music tells me the album should look like. Um, not what I go in thinking it should look like and not what the band would tell me it should look like. It really is about the music. And this comes from being somebody who used to, um, you know, go to record stores and, you know, flip through the dollar bins or go to the Salvation Army and flip through records. Again, this is long before Spotify and the ability to hear any song right away. I used to purchase records based on the cover art Mm -hmm. and the cover art had to tell me what that record was going to sound like. And I'd get home with like, you know, a stack of dollar records and I'd put them on and, you know, I don't know, eight times out of 10, the covers looked nothing like the music sounded like. Um, And so it was really important to me, especially with an indie label uh, that couldn't afford you know, the, you know, the, to get all the radio play, to get all the reviews that would describe the music in a way that people would know that they would like it and should go purchase it to get the record stores, you know, to play it in store. It was important to me that the covers would channel either indirectly or directly by including stickers that might say recommended if you like these artists um, or sounds like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very important that the artwork channel what the music sounds like. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, and and then I would say in terms of the aesthetics of the label and the consistency there, um, one way that I sort of cheated that, that allowed me to make each record feel like the music sounded was that I, I most often would put the logo of the label on the front cover, usually on the upper left or upper right, uh, um, sometimes you know somewhere on the front cover, um, as almost like a seal of approval, mm-hmm. um, but very much borrowed from things that labels from the sixties, like A&M records uh, used to do. Um, and so that was one element uh, that helped uh, create some sort of branding and, and consistency. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it worked because, you know, I noticed that early on, I mean, once the first couple of releases came out, you know, I, I could tell, you know, obviously the shoestrings cover had had a very different look than, say the Momus cover, but you're right with, with either the banner or the logo on the front, you could definitely tell that it, it belonged to the label. And I mean, it worked for me. So it worked at the time, you know, I was, I was very much, I would purchase records because of the label, the, the labels back then were like a seal of approval and, and maybe today too. Um, but uh, you know, but that was my goal to some degree with the grand magistrate was that for a certain set of people, it would be, um, sort of a seal of approval or a sense that, you know, if you liked others, you would like this. Yeah. You know, I talked to Claire Wad uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and I think that exact conversation came up. It was, you know, obviously, you know, obsessive fans out there of Sarah and, and it was like, 
I think she had mentioned that, you know, there were folks that would just give her 20, I, I don't know the conversion at this point, but mm-hmm. 20 pounds and say, whatever you've got coming out, just send it to me. And That's so it right. had that similar seal of approval that whatever, you know, Claire and Matt touched that, you know, the fans knew that they were going to love it. And, and, I think I think that worked. So yeah, that's really well. They they achieved what I was striving for. Oh yeah, yeah, they did. <laughs> you know, I guess I guess the flip side of that question is really, you know, I don't know if if you could share with with you know the listeners and myself, you know, example of maybe a, a design that you did for for your label where mm-hmm. maybe you know you were super excited about. It. And I, I mean, you know this. I mean, this is what you live. But you were super excited about it. You showed the artist, and they were like, uh I don't think so. <laughs> oh yeah, gosh. I mean, many. Uh, you know, but but you know, the 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 thing is that I'm not what I would call a, a one and done designer. Sure, um, sure. You know, way back in art school, I learned that your first idea is sometimes, but very rarely, your best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, and this isn't actually from the label, but for example, um, gosh, about eight years ago. I designed the spoon album, They Want My Soul or They mm-hmm. Want Your Soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I must have shared nearly 200 different designs with the band um, <laughs> before we settled on the final art. Now, that wasn't 200, you know, unique, um, completely disparate ideas. There were obviously iterations and such. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and of course, that's an extreme case, you know, but I, I never go away into sort of the darkness and come back to an artist and say, here's the cover, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's all. Um, and again, with Spoon, I have a great relationship um, working with Britt Daniel from Spoon um, had previously designed uh, his band, the Divine Fits uh, mm-hmm. album art. Um, and uh, and again, multiple iterations of They Want, they want Your Soul. Um, but uh, it's always a collaborative process, you know? So, uh, and, and I think that it's that input that really makes it better, you know, as a designer, I mean, this is something I truly believe as a designer, you're not a fine artist, you know, no one's sort of paying money for you to just do what you think is right. You know, as a designer, you have clients and and, in some degree, you know, running a record label as a designer simultaneously, you have two clients. You've got the artists who you want to make happy because you want them to be happy with this packaging that that is in sort of encasing their art. And then you want the, um, you know, sort of the fans and, and sort of consumers of the label on the other, high, other end to sort of um, relate to it and understand what that music's going to be like. So collaboration is, is a huge part of the process. Now that said, you know, I, I've sometimes thought I nailed it and then was disappointed when an artist didn't agree. Um, and I mean, I'd say that when those things happen about 10 times out of 10, we do end up with something better. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been a few times, you know, where I shared a cover an artist didn't move forward with. And I, I probably have never admitted this, but I'm going to, I'm going to, say it on this podcast (laughs) you know but there were a few times i designed a cover for an artist that i really thought was the one and so one example was for a band called push kings Mm -hmm. um i designed a cover for them that i was like this is it it's perfect looks feels like the music you know it'll stand out on the shelves and they did not go for it Mm -hmm. um and so when it came time to design you know, an upcoming album for another artist. And this was for a band called The Snitches. Mm-hmm. Um, I included what I had done for the Push Kings as one of the options. And The Snitches were like, yeah, that's a great one. Let's do that. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, so, and then uh, similarly, another one I remember was um, uh, I was designing the uh, a re-release of an album by a, a sort of spoken word jazz artist named Ken Nordine. And it was being released by Panasonic in Japan. And I had designed the album artwork for that. And they actually paid me for it, but they never released the, the, um, they never went forward with the release. And I love that cover. Um, And so years later, I think uh, maybe a year later or something, I remember reaching out to the person who had contracted me to do that artwork. And I asked, you know, if it's okay, if I propose it to someone else. And he said, yes. And 
I shared that with Mr. Wright, who at that point I was releasing his second album, which is called Star Time mm -hmm. on Le Grand Magistery. Uh, and the Star Time artwork was uh, originally intended as the Ken Nordine Colors artwork. And I will say there's been a few other instances like that. I generally think as a designer that you often think like, oh, you know, this person doesn't want to move forward for this. I'll never find anyone else who wants to, or, or you forget about those things. But there have been um, a few times where I have been able to resurrect things. So, um, you know, something good out of, out of something bad. Wow. You know, I was, I was just looking at that cover, um, I think a couple of days ago and, and I was listening to the album. I, you know, I'm a big fan of Mr. Right. And I was like, this, this just, this is great. I mean, the cover fits the music and, and a little oh, bit. Totally. It was for someone, it was originally for, yeah, it was for else. someone else. It was, and those, those, those were that the photos for that were Christmas lights. So that's, there's a whole, you know, that's the other thing I'd say about the grand magistery in terms of, um, and I know this isn't a question you're asking, but as we're on the subject of that yes. artwork, I photographed that Mr. Wright cover. Um, he had sent me one photo for the release and it was a passport photo. Um, it was his passport photo essentially of his face. Um, and that was all I had. And it's on the record. You'll see it on the front cover. It's in mm -hmm. a small circle, I believe. Mm -hmm. I, haven't, I haven't actually looked at that cover in a while. Um, but I needed to build out the, the release you know, beyond that. And I had these, um, and oh, I had done it for the Ken Nordine record, which was I had had these uh, Christmas lights that I had photographed in my bathtub in New York because <laughs> I was in a small studio apartment that was actually very bright. And the only place that there was darkness was in the bathroom. And so I had a string of Christmas lights in the bathtub and I was sort of photographing it. And honestly, probably not very safe to have electricity <laughs> you know, lit up in the bathtub. There was no water. <laughs> Um, but that was the cover of the Mr. Right record. Um, and I, I photographed that I mean, uh, originally for Ken Nordine, then Mr. Right. I photographed that on um, uh, with using Kodak uh, uh, slides, slide film. Mm -hmm. And a couple years later, uh, when I was designing, I think it was a Momus album, I photographed a friend of mine uh, standing and uh, projected these slides on her, uh, something I had seen in a Stanley Donnan film that starred um, what Gregory Peck and Sophia Loren called Arabesque, mm -hmm. um, where the opening scene is a great scene where someone's at the eye doctor and they have like these um, essentially slides projected on their face. And so I projected the slide film um, on this friend of mine and I photographed her with the slide film. Those photos ended up on a free design album cover that Elephant Records released. Um, they are used on the cover of the Stars album, Night Songs, which was mm. Stars' debut record. Mm -hmm. um, on the Louis Philippe album that I released, A Kiss in the Fun House, you'll find at least one of those photos there. And I believe there were probably two other instances where those same uh, photos uh, or at least from that same session were used. And what I, what I'm getting to here is as a small label with a very limited budget, you know, I had to stretch things, you know, I, I, I didn't hire photographers, you know, there were a couple of times I had friends who were illustrators, um, you know, or maybe the band, you know, knew a photographer, but I pretty much, it was, it was, even though the label had a, feeling and from the name Le Grand Magistery had a bit of a sort of majestic feeling. It was really done in a very sort of pauperish fashion, very <laughs> DIY, um, you know, but but with the with the intention of having it feel somewhat regal and bespoke. Yeah, and you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't know that just looking at the covers. I mean, you would at least at least from my perspective, you know, the packaging was always really solid. I mean there were the times where you had the cardboard, you know, outer sleeve. And, and I mean, you would never think that that was, you know, trying to be done on a budget. Obviously it had to be, but you definitely pulled it off because I, I would never have thought that. So I, I well, that, well, I well, so you talk about those cow cardboard O cards that started out, um, that started out. I would, my mom, uh, and I, and, um, I, I can't thank her enough for this. My mom and I would sit, we'd get the, the CDs from the manufacturer and I would have a pack of Avery labels. And I basically would, you know, um, 
layout for these Avery labels to print saying, you know, recommended if you like these artists, or uh, if there was happened to be a good review about the artist, we'd print that on the Avery label. And then my mom and I would sit and almost like this, um, uh, you know, sort of line, like in Lucille Ball, you know, show <laughs> like chocolate line, we'd basically like, you know, quickly try to like label and tag all these being very precise of exactly where we put these stickers on the records. Um, a few years later, I was lucky enough to get a manufacturing and distribution deal um, from BMG, which at the time and, and maybe still um, was the largest or one of the largest manufacturers and distributors of, of music in the world. Um, and it was through the relationship with them that I was then able to use things like those cardboard O cards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yes, that was not um, a budget move. Um, that was was a move once I had some some additional support for the label um, from BMG. Um, you know, it, it, it's really I was looking over the you know the discography again this evening before before we talked and. I think it's a real testament that, you know, most, many of your acts are still making records and, and really you had, I mean, I would consider a very, very diverse stable of artists. Yeah. I'd like to know a little bit about how you went into choosing those artists, the ones that you released and, and really, you know, what were you looking for? So I'm sure, you know, some labels say, you know, I'm not as much about the music as I am the artist. In other words, I want an artist that's willing to, to sell out everything for their art. And I, and I know that, that that artist will be committed and that artist will be creative and that I guess, so I'm looking to find out from you, you know, kind of what went into that decision and then really what were you looking for? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would say with Le Grand Magisteri, there were three categories of artists and, and it's likely the case with many other labels, but there were the artists I was already a fan of, like Momus, like Kahimi Kari, um, like Louis Philippe, uh, et cetera. Uh, and then there were the artists who I was friends with um, prior to them working on Le Grand Magisteri. And that would be like Marion Rose from Shoestrings, like Kendall from Mascot. Um, and then there were the artists who sent in demos uh, and sort of won me over, you know, with um, these sort of cold call mailings. And that would be bands like Stars, A Girl Called Eddie, um, Pascal, you know, many of whom ended up being uh, good friends in, in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say for me, aside from how I came about discovering those artists, it it was always about the the lyrics and it was always about the stories. Uh, and I think I touched on this a little earlier. Um, it wasn't about the sounds as much as it was about the narratives. Um, and when I think about it, um, one of the best artists on the label for this as a storyteller was a French musician named Tug. <laughs> and although he sung in French and I do not speak French. So contrary to the label being Le Grand Magistery, I do not speak French or understand it. Um, but interestingly, Tug, um, when he would perform live in, in the U.S., he would give these brief introductions in English that would set up the narrative of the song he was going to perform. Um, and then he'd sing them in French and the instrumentation, it almost doubled as like a sound effect that helped convey even to non-French speakers exactly what was happening in the song. And to me, that was brilliant. It was like these little three minute stories set to music that you could follow even without understanding this the sort of what he was saying in, yeah. in lyrics but that's the thing with every song um and i think momus is a master at this you know it's it's sure. it's like three minutes or five minutes they're like three or five minute novels or poems set to music um there are very very few instrumentals on Le grand magisteri um pascal uh, had a few instrumentals. Incidentally, those instrumentals ended up um, in the end probably being the most successful um, yeah. for the label and the artist because they were licensed for Saturn commercials and in the TV show Malcolm in the Middle mm-hmm. um, and and for other uses commercially. Um, but for me, it's always been about the lyrics and the stories. And don't get me wrong, Pascal um, and Computer Perfection, which grew out of Pascal, um, similarly, um, have great lyrics and narratives too. 
the next song we're going to hear is, and you've mentioned Momus a couple of times, is, is going to be a track from Momus from the second album that he did for you called The Little Red Songbook. Uh, you know, I love this album. I was listening to it. I did a long drive today, as we talked about, maybe a little bit in the intro. But it's funny you mentioned instrumental because I made a note here that I thought it was really ingenious that he included, you know, karaoke tracks at the end of the album for each song. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And so with that, I'd like to give a listen to Old Friend New Flame by Momus, a spin. I went with a friend of mine I hadn't seen in years To a party that would end in tears He told me on the phone his new lover was appealing Beautiful and young, probably worth stealing to my bones watching my friend's new squeeze he'd always been alone now he had somebody stuck by the fridge door bored by the disco sounds i find magnetic letters started to push them up That's great. You know, you know, Brian, it, it's interesting. You said just before playing that, that Momus had included on that record karaoke versions of each mm-hmm. of the songs at the end. Uh, and we actually had a karaoke competition where people sent in um, them singing, the, you know, the Momus songs. Um, but what was interesting is at the time when Grant Grand Magistrate was in its heyday, CDs were in their heyday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on albums, on vinyl albums, you could have about 44 minutes of music. But on CDs, um, what could you have, like 70, 80 or 90 minutes? Yeah, 70 something, I believe. Yeah, 70 some minutes. So we had a lot of room to fill. So it allowed us to do things, um, you know, like include those karaoke versions. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And I I, I made like a a playlist of of Le Grand Magisteri recordings just kind of prepping for this and oh cool it, it was funny because every once in a while i think it's oh it's, a cool, it's another moment song and then i'd be like oh this is the karaoke version oh that's funny <laughs> and i'm not gonna sing to it <laughs> i hope you enjoyed part one of my discussion with matthew jacobson i strongly urge you to jump right into part two where matt starts off talking about his time working with jack white and his team at third man records in nashville where matt served for about one year as an in-house designer you don't want to miss this discussion. It's really, really good. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of things when Matt and I discuss in part two, things like how he and his wife created their own joint record label called Marriage Records. As always, you can hear all episodes of this podcast on your favorite podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and others. Please feel free to leave me a comment or a review. Or feel free to drop me a note at vinyldetroit.podcast at gmail.com. Again, please give a listen to my conversation with Matthew Jacobson of Legrand Magisteri now in Episode 7 of this podcast, where we'll continue our discussion. We'll close this episode with a track by the music lovers entitled This World Versus the Next World. Let's give it a spin. This world versus the next world in our time It's this world versus the next world every night Well, I'm planning my truth to the underworld Climbing into bed with the alchemic girl It's this world versus the old world in our times The old world versus the new world in our times While the future arrives 
when we sent him back Torched our silver linings and painted our blue skies black Water Run the ground, run the ground. 